If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. This episode of The Vault is from November 17, 2012, when the Institute held a day-long symposium in which playwrights, poets, scientists, philosophers, artists, and activists discussed the phenomenon of solitary confinement. Titled, Should You Ever Happen to Find Yourself in Solitary, Wry Fancies and Stark Realities, the event was the brainchild of Lawrence Weschler, the Institute's director. Juan Mendez is the UN's special rapporteur on torture and other cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment or punishment. He teaches human rights law at the American University Washington College of Law and is the co-author of Taking a Stand, The Evolution of Human Rights. Now we begin to turn to what, what can be done and what must be done. I think a good place to start is with Juan Mendez, who himself wants a political prisoner in Argentina, but who has become one of the leading human rights workers in the world and is currently the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture. Juan, maybe a first question for you is going to be, is this torture? And is this part of your remit? And if it is, where do the United States fit within it? I'm the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture and other cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment or punishment. That's the full title. And although this rapporteurship has been around 27 or 28 years, I'm the first person to hold it who is a survivor of torture himself. I spent a year and a half in prison in Argentina, and of those, only a few days at different times in solitary confinement, but I have a glimpse at least of what it is. I want to explain why I wrote a special report to the General Assembly of the United Nations about solitary confinement. And I was surprised that it got much more resonance than I had expected. Among other things, because civil society organizations in this country especially, but also elsewhere, have been working on solitary confinement and seem to have taken the report that I wrote as an instrument to campaign around the abolition or at least the more careful regulation of the use of solitary confinement. The title of my rapporteurship is relevant to this because, and relevant to Rand's question as I was walking up, because international law prohibits torture and prohibits cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment or punishment. And it prohibits them both in an absolute manner, without any consideration of emergency or or even individual reasons for engaging in either torture or cruel inhuman and degrading treatment can excuse the responsibility of a state for inflicting that. But unfortunately, it doesn't say much about how torture or cruel inhuman and degrading treatment happens. We know torture when we see it, but we have to bear in mind that in international law, these two categories are related in a manner of degree. Therefore, cruel inhuman and degrading treatment is a less demanding standard than torture. And also, Torture uh, requires a deliberate infliction, whereas for cruelly human and degrading treatment, it can result from negligence or from just bureaucratic 
exercise of power without anybody deliberately wanting to inflict uh, pain and suffering. But pain and suffering are the operative words. If there is pain and suffering that crosses a line into first cruel and human undergrain treatment or second, uh, you know, more, more seriously into torture, then the international prohibition is clearly there. And my predecessors in the rapporteurship, as well as the Committee Against Torture, which is the uh, implementing body of the Convention Against Torture, to which the United States, by the way, is a party, clearly establish that under some circumstances, solitary confinement can be either cruel and human undergrading treatment or even torture. The problem is they, they always said can or may or uh, under certain circumstances, but I thought that I could, uh, you know, kind of push the envelope of the debate and try to determine under what circumstances we can talk about pain and suffering that crosses that uh, threshold into cruel and human undergrading treatment or even torture. You should bear in mind that my mandate is narrow to conditions of detention. I can't and I don't get engaged on to whether somebody should be in prison or not, or should be tried or should be prosecuted or not. So, but if that person is under any form of uh, detention or deprivation of freedom, then I look at the conditions and see if this threshold that I'm talking about, these thresholds that I'm talking about are being crossed. And of course, discrimination uh, on the basis of race or any other form of discrimination is part of the standard too, because the Convention Against Torture specifically says treatment that is inflicted, that crosses the line into pain and suffering of this sort, and that it is inflicted because of racial or other forms of discrimination is also prohibited absolutely by international law. I wrote the report because in my experience as a special rapporteur, I was getting more and more cases from around the world on the uses of solitary confinement, isolation, segregation, and a variety of names. And early on, I worked on the case of Bradley Manning that I'm sure you've heard about. And I did uh, conclude and published my views that the eight months that he spent in Iraq and in Quantico Marine Base near Washington under solitary confinement were a violation of the United States of its obligations under the Convention Against Torture because there was no justification for such a prolonged period of solitary confinement, even in pretrial detention. The only explanation that I got from the Pentagon was that his solitary confinement was related to the seriousness of the crime that he was charged with. But it seems to me that if you're only charged with a crime and you haven't been found guilty of it, there's really no reason to establish that. I have to say also, as you know, that when he was transferred uh, in April of 2011 to Fort Leavenworth, he was no longer placed in solitary confinement. And But anyway, simultaneous with the case of Bradley Manning, I was getting cases from the United States, but also from several other countries. And it seemed to me like, and this is uh, unfortunately impressionistic because I really don't have statistics, that around the world, solitary confinement is being used more and more and that is being used for different purposes. Uh, the more that it is used, the less that it is surrounded by any kinds of guarantees of due process in the determination of whether someone should be put in solitary confinement or not, and less guarantees of medical health, less insistence on making sure that it doesn't have the negative effects that we, we now know it has. It's also used for various purposes. For example, in some countries, it is the actual way in which long prison terms are actually served. 
you're actually convicted to, say, 20 years, and you actually serve them in solitary because the crime is very serious. In some other countries, for example, where the death penalty is under some kind of moratorium and there's an automatic commutation of sentence to life, the people who are taken out of death row and into a life term are actually put in solitary confinement. Who knows for how long, right? Even in very highly democratic countries like the Nordic countries, it is used in pretrial detention for purposes of ensuring the integrity of criminal investigations. And so, for example, if they want to disrupt a, a network and they have some people in custody and some at large, in order to prevent them from communicating, the people they have in custody, they put them in solitary, but up to like a year, for example, not, not a few days, not just to you know, uh, prevent immediate communication, but for long terms. Because of, uh, of all these various uses, and for example, in Latin America, it used to be that uh, regulations established at no more than 21 days at a time for disciplinary offenses was available. And to my surprise, at least in the democratic period that we are living now in Latin America, without the public really being conscious about it, the regulations have been changed so much so that in Brazil, in Argentina, in Paraguay, the regulations contemplate that somebody for disciplinary offenses can be put in solitary confinement for up to nine months, for example. Obviously, those are not the worst problems in prisons in Latin America. Let, let, let's put it in context. But it is a trend, and, uh, and that's why I thought we needed to talk about, about this. The thematic reports of the special rapporteurships are an opportunity to discuss standards, especially when there aren't any. And unfortunately, in the case of solitary confinement, the only standard that we have is if it inflicts pain and suffering that crosses a certain threshold, and that threshold is unfortunately both objective and subjective, so it's not a clear line, then it's prohibited. But beyond that, and beyond the fact that Committee Against Torture and my predecessors as special rapporteurs have from time to time said that they think that under certain circumstances, solitary confinement can be cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment or even torture, there hasn't been that much conversation about what those standards are. In fact, when I spoke at the General Assembly a year ago, the U.S. representative, when she intervened, she said, we use it and there are no standards. And I said, yeah, exactly, there are no standards and we should start talking about those standards because otherwise the fact that there are no standards doesn't mean that you can do anything you want with it. So I wrote this report and I am happy to say that it got more, much more resonance than I had expected. It's not only that what I discussed about the, the fact that civil society groups and, and solidarity groups in the United States have found it useful, but for example, simultaneously, the Committee to Prevent Torture, which is a, an organ of the Council of Europe that visits prisons on a regular basis, they published uh, also in October of 2011 their own annual report, and they called for regulation of solitary confinement because they thought that in Europe solitary confinement was getting out of hand. And as a result, uh, Norway, at least I know, and maybe Sweden and Denmark as well, have announced a review of their practices of solitary confinement in pretrial detention. In addition, in the meantime, as you know, there's been the hearings in, in the Senate presided by Senator Durbin that have really called attention on what re solitary confinement really is and an, an excellent editorial in the New York Times. The Tams prison in Illinois uh, has been announced that it's going to be closed precisely because it uses solitary confinement, although it's not clear that Illinois is going to abandon solitary confinement altogether because they may still use it in other prisons. But 
the fact that a, an emblematic place like Tams is going to be closed down, I think, encourages all of us to think that there are things that we can accomplish and that it's worth uh, fighting against this trend. We're going to hear later about the announcement by the New York State, in fact, that there is going to be a review, thanks to the report that Scarlett and others have written for the New York Civil Liberties Union. So my attempt at defining the problem starts, as I said, with the definition of pain and suffering. And the fact that it may have a delayed effect should not make it any less a matter of cruel inhuman and degrading treatment or even of torture. Many of the cases that I was looking into the authorities would say, well, we're monitoring the person and uh, they're fine. There's no problem. And I think that that, you know, in addition uh, to not relying exclusively on what the authorities say or their doctors, we should also insist on the fact that pain and suffering could be immediate, but it could also be on a delayed effect basis as well. And it would still violate the obligation of the state. And I relied as much as I could, of course, on medical and psychiatric uh, literature that clearly explains that at some point, it's a relatively early point, the mind starts working differently when you are in 22 to 24 hours a day looking at a wall. And so without getting into much more details about what the report says, I did make some proposals. And uh, my recommendations were to encourage the international community as a whole to come up with uh, absolute bans on some forms of solitary confinement. First, an absolute ban on indefinite solitary confinement, because it seems to me that the fact that you don't know when it's going to end, the fact that you don't know what you need to do to make it stop, adds a degree of anxiety that obviously has to have negative effects and adds an additional degree of pain and suffering. I also propose a ban on prolonged solitary confinement. And then I I found myself in the position of having to say, well, after how many days can we call it prolonged? And I recognized in the report that this is necessarily arbitrary. But I said anything beyond 15 days should be at least suspect. Now, I've been been challenged on that because it it really depends. 15 days of 24-hour complete isolation is one thing. 20 days with, for example, access to reading material, access to television, access to radio maybe a little different. But I made it a point to make sure that whatever, even, even if we fix it at 15 days or if we fix it a little higher, we need a, a maximum term. We need a maximum term and it cannot be measured in months and it cannot be measured in years. It has to be measured in days. And it has to be measured in days and quite frankly, it is arbitrary, but 15 days I borrowed from the medical literature that says that after 15 days, it's when the brain starts working differently. And that's why I think, you know, at least 15 days should be a starting point. And yes, you know, we may be able to come up with some other maximum term, but it can't be, as I said, uh, much longer than that. I also called for a complete ban, again, relying on the medical literature, on imposing solitary confinement on juveniles and imposing solitary confinement on people with any kind of mental disability. And then for those cases in which solitary confinement may be legitimate, let's say that, for example, for the protection of the person himself or herself, or because this is a predator that cannot be let loose in a general population, then I think my report also calls for several safeguards, but mostly due process safeguards to make sure that there is access to administrative and then even to judicial review that's meaningful, that's not, you know, kind of a token gesture. 
and that provides the, the, the person who's been, who's going to be put in solitary confinement an opportunity to challenge the decision or to challenge the manner of the execution of the decision as well. And also medical and psychiatric safeguards. And I propose that no one is ever put in a single day of solitary confinement without a serious medical examination prior to the moment in which that person is going to be put in solitary confinement. So I'll be glad to discuss some other aspects of the report if you're interested. But I want to say that one of the most interesting things that I read after this report is a book in Spanish called Memorias del Calabozo, loosely translated as Memory of the Cell. It's written by two Uruguayans, Eleuterio Fernández Huidobro and Mauricio Rosenkopf. And these are two people who, because they were well-known leaders of the Tupamaro guerrilla movement, they were among, I think, something like 15 people who were held as hostages by the military dictatorship and held for 11 years, moved around different military installations in Uruguay and held in solitary confinement for the whole 11, 11 years. These two people tell of themselves and of their third friend uh, who was with them, they were in such strict solitary confinement that they actually devised a system of communicating with each other via sort of a, a you know, a rudimentary Morse system by making noises uh, against the wall. And for two years, they were in non-contiguous cells, so they, they couldn't even do that. It's a very painful story, but it's full of some uh, very Uruguayan kind of black humor as well. So it's really a, a great read. And I finish with, uh, with mention of this book because nowadays, Eleuterio Fernández Huidobro is the Minister of Defense of Uruguay. So that should give some hope, just like the very good uplifting stories that we heard in the previous panel. And the third person that they talk about is José Mujica, who happens to be the president of Uruguay today. And he's not only the president of Uruguay, he's credited worldwide for being the only president of any country that is, uh, uh, that is poor, that is not a rich, a wealthy person. Well, thank you very much. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.